And we are in the book of James, James chapter 1. We're going to read just two verses of Scripture today, verses 17 and verse 18. James chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. James writes, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of, a, of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. The story is told of an ancient kingdom whose sovereign had just passed away and whose ambassadors were sent out to choose a successor. They had to make a choice between two twin infants. They found the children fast asleep and looking at them carefully, they agreed that it was a difficult decision to make. That was until they noticed a curious little difference between the two boys. For as they lay there, one infant slept with his fists closed. And the other child slept with his little hands opened. And instantly they made their selection of the latter child. And sure enough, the story concludes that as he grew up to his high station, the boy became known as the king with the open hand. My friends, this morning we serve a king with an open hand. A God in heaven whose nature it is to love us and to give unto us. I want you to think this morning about something in your life that is good, something in your life that is special, maybe even a special someone in your life, someone that you think, well, I couldn't live without that person, perhaps. Well, now as you think of that good thing, I want you to know this morning and to see that God gave that thing or gave that person to you. He brought it to pass. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. And really it is the goodness of God, Scripture teaches us, that ultimately leads us even to repentance. So James, having pointed out in our previous sermon, in our previous text, that God is not the source of evil, now makes the point that God is the source of all good. But you know what one of the devil's tricks is? One of the devil's tricks is to try and convince us that God is holding back on us. That God is somehow selling us short. That God is not really loving us and caring for us as he could or perhaps as he ought. Look with me again in Genesis chapter 3. We go to Genesis chapter 3. And to the fall of man. In the third chapter of Genesis in verse 1, we begin to read how sin came into the world. And it says, now the serpent was more subtle. Notice that word, subtle. He was very clever. He was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now notice what? The devil said and how he termed it. He puts a seed of 
doubt in the mind of Eve. And he says, well, did God really say that? Is this, is this what God said? You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And if you were to continue down the text, you'd see immediately Eve goes into confusion. But notice verse 5. He says of, the, of this fruit, For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, that your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. In other words, he says, God is holding back on you, Eve. God knows that if you partake of this fruit, that you will be elevated, that you will be somehow promoted, that you will be raised to a level equivalent with God. And because God doesn't want you in that position, he's holding this law against you. And he's trying to suppress you. And he's trying to keep you down. And he's holding back on you. But friends, that's not how God is at all. The goodness of God, we'll see, is seen in the greatest gift of all, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to go back to James and think about every good gift that God gives. And I want you to notice the design of every gift. It says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Very interesting. Two different Greek words there, translated by, with the word gift. The first word, every good gift, is referring to the act of giving. The second word, and every perfect gift, is referring to the thing that is given, to the gift itself. In other words, in both the act of giving and in the gift itself, God's goodness is revealed to us. Now, the value of a gift may be diminished by the way in which it is given, Indeed, the value of a gift may even be increased by the way in which it is given. For example, suppose it's a woman's birthday and her husband comes home and he has a box of chocolates or something. And as he's walking past her, he just flings it on the tea and he says to her, there's your birthday present. How does she feel? Does she feel valued? Does she feel my husband loves me? Or does she think... He doesn't care a jot about me. You see, the gift is diminished by the spirit of the giver. On the other hand, suppose on that same day, a little infant goes out into the garden and picks a handful of dandelions and brings them in and says, Mommy, there's a gift for you. There's some flowers for your birthday. How does the mother now feel? She feels cherished by the little one. Though the gift of, is of no value whatsoever, the fact that it is given out of such a sincere and loving heart increases the value of the gift. So a gift may be given in any number of ways. You know, a person may give a, a, an instance, in an insincere way, or they may give uh, in, uh, in such a way that uh, it's, it looks like it's expected of us to give. You know, I'm just giving to you because I have to. Uh, you know, a gift may be given with ulterior motives. For example... A woman may not particularly desire uh, to, to, as, a, as a gift to uh, go and see a football match, but her husband may indeed, on Valentine's Day, take her to Liverpool and invite her to go shopping and take her into the Liverpool Football Club megastore for a shopping experience and then take her to see Liverpool versus Arsenal as a Valentine's gift. Now, I don't know anybody who would do such a rotten thing, except for Andrew Crawford. 
that guy. He's not even in here today. Shame on him. Poor Allison. When I heard this story, I was horrified. But I thought, well, there's a good gift for me. Give me a gift of an illustration. And I told him I was going to use it as an illustration. Well, God isn't like Andrew. He doesn't give something that is given out of self-interest. He gives something because he's a loving God, because he's a gracious God, because he's a kind God, because he's a merciful God. You see, what God gives and how God gives is perfect for us, is absolutely good. His gift is perfect in its content and it's perfect in its presentation. He gives with a full heart and he gives with an open hand. It's the design of the gift. But notice the direction of the gift in verse 17. It says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. Now notice those words. They, this gift cometh down. It comes down from the Father of lights. The Greek tense suggests that it is something that is continually given that God continually gives to us. He is constantly showering us with his blessings and his mercies. In other words, there's never a moment in your life when God is not giving. There's never a moment in your life when he is not showing you some level of mercy. There's never a moment in your life when he's not loving you. You know, Lamentations reminds us that his mercies and his, and his faithfulness is new every morning. When you sang it, great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Every single day, God expresses his faithfulness to us. In fact, Jesus pointed out that every day the goodness of God blesses every single man and woman and child of us the world over. He says that God maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. So each day every one of us benefits from the blessings of a God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. But then notice that little expression James uses, the father of lights. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. It's a term that Jews used very often. Uh, James, of course, if you recall, is writing to Jewish believers. He's writing to Christians out of, out of, of Jewish extraction. And he's hearkening back to the beginning, back to the creation story, those very first moments. And as you open to Genesis 1, 1, what do you read? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then you read, and God said, let there be light. And as you continue down that narrative, you come to the fourth day and he says, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth also, and it was so. So God's first creative act was to call light out of darkness. And then halfway through the creation week, he created lights that he placed in the sky, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now, of course, over time, men began to worship those things. The Egyptians worshipped a god called Ra. He was the sun god. And they worship the sun. The Babylonians worship the moon. 
In fact, that's the root of Islam. Islam is rooted in moon worship. That's why you've, in every Islamic mosque, there's a crescent moon that is symbolized over the dome of the mosque. Many Muslims don't understand that. It's a great question to ask them if you're witnessing to them. What is the significance of the crescent moon in Islam? They don't realize that at heart they're idolaters. That comes out of Babylonian religion. The worship of the moon, the worship of the stars. And so the Jews, in contrast to those who worship those elements of the universe around us, refer to God as the Father of lights. He's greater than the sun. He's greater than the moon. He's greater than the stars. Here's the thing about the Father of lights. You see, the, the sun, the moon, the stars, well, their light comes and goes. You think about it. Sun rises in the west, or rises in the east rather, and sets in the west. Comes up, you have dawn, it's a little bit grey at dawn most times, and then the sun gets up, and if you're very fortunate, you might find that it's a sunny day. Not often in this part of the world, but you might occasionally see the sunny day. And then, of course, the sun sets. And around dusk again, it becomes a little shady. The moon, well, the moon, some day, some nights shines brightly, other nights it doesn't shine at all. Depends on what phase of the moon you're looking at. And so simple observation reveals to us there's no consistency in the light of the sun or the light of the moon. But God is not like that in his giving. James says that unlike the sun and the moon, the father of lights, with him there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He says there's no change, there's no difference. Every day is the same as the day before. Tomorrow will be the same as today and, and today is the same as yesterday as far as God's giving is concerned. God's goodness and his giving is one of life's constants. Every day they see you. And not only that, but God never regrets his giving. There's no shadow of turning with him. He never says, well, you know, I, I wish I hadn't given them that. You know, sometimes we give a gift and we say to ourselves, I wish I hadn't given him that. I wish I hadn't given her that. Maybe we give somebody something and they don't really appreciate the value of it. Maybe we give something to a a younger member of the family, an heirloom of some kind, and, and they don't have the same sentimental attachment to it as you have, or you feel like that object merits. And and then you might say, well, I wish I hadn't given that to her. Maybe I should have waited a, a little bit longer. Maybe I they should have I should have waited till they were older and they might have appreciated it more. Or maybe we see someone get becoming obsessed with their gift. You know, maybe you give your child a, a games console. And now instead of spending time with their siblings or spending time with you, uh, their head is constantly in the computer and they're constantly playing games and their thumbs are always going and they've got time for nothing else. And you might think, well, I wish I'd never given him that. But God never does that. He's never sorry about the gifts that he gives. Why? Because his gifts are perfect. Everything he gives is just right. Paul put it this way. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, 
may abound to every good work. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God for the administration of his grace, not only supplieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. So here's the deal. Contrary to Satan's original temptation, God is not holding out on you. You know, if you're here and you think other people are more blessed than you are, You've been deluded. No one is more blessed than you are. If you think that God cares for someone else more, better than he cares for you, you're mistaken. God cares for you exactly the same as he, counts, uh, as he cares for anyone else. God loves you with the same degree of love as he loves me. And he loves me with the same degree of love as he loves others. And so in that respect, there's no difference. God is no respecter of person. He's an open-handed father. He's not the mean-spirited churl that Satan would portray him as. He loves us with an everlasting love. And every single day of our lives, his giving is faithful and constant. Now, we've thought about the direction of his love and the design of his love. Let's think about the details of his love. Look in verse 18. It says, Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. In verse 18, James focuses upon the new birth. He, he exemplifies the new birth as a case in point, he's saying to us, now listen, if you think that God isn't a giving God, if you think he isn't a loving God, if you think he isn't a faithful God, a compassionate God, he says, let me take you back to your salvation. Let me take you back to the greatest gift of all, that experience of regeneration whereby a sinner is born again into the family of God and is cleansed of all his sins and reconciled to God and given a relationship with God. He says of his own will, notice, begat he us. It's an old English word, begat. We don't use it today. But it simply means he brought forth. He brought us forth. It's the same word that's translated in verse 15 about sin when it says, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. Sin brings forth death. God brings forth life. Sin births death. God births life. He birthed us, James said. You want to know how much God loves you? He birthed you, not only physically, 
but spiritually. That's how a person is saved. That's why in John chapter 3, John to, uh, Jesus told Nicodemus, uh, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, when it's talking about being born of water there, it's not speaking of baptism. No one was ever saved by being baptized. No one was ever saved by being christened, if you want to refer to that. No one was ever saved by any ceremony ever performed by man in any situation. Listen to me. The free is born of water has a reference to your physical birth. Jesus emphasizes that when he says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. You've been born once. You've been born physically into this world. When your mother's waters, your mother's waters broke and you came into this world, you were born of water. Jesus says that's one birth. He says, but one birth isn't enough. You need two births. You've been born physically, now you need to be born spiritually. You've been born once and now you need to be born again. And so God, and no one but God, brings about the new birth in us. He says, of his own will, he begat he us. Now, before you get off on the deep end there and, and try to suggest some kind of unconditional election there, uh, let's realize that, the, it's, that, that you're missing the instrument of the new birth because you're putting a full stop in that verse where no full stop is. Understand this, he says, of his own will, begat he us with or by the word of truth. The new birth doesn't come because of some special movement by God outside of the word of God. The new birth comes at the preaching of the word of God. As the word of God is preached, a person falls under conviction of sin. They realize their need. They see themselves as a sinner before God. They recognize that they have no right of entry into heaven. They realize that they're completely alien to the truths of God. They see that they have no relationship with God, no bearing with him whatsoever. And seeing their need, they respond to the invitation of Scripture to come and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they exercise fear in the word of God and they are born again. That's what it is to be a Christian. Peter put it this way, we're being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. And Paul puts it this way, for though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, speaking to the Corinthians, yet have ye not many fathers? For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you. I have begotten you, he says, through the gospel. Through the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The instrument that God uses to accomplish human salvation is the Scriptures. And no one was ever saved apart from the Word of God. Now, I want you to get this. You might say, well, Pastor, I know this man, and he, he had a vision. Maybe he did. Who am I to say he didn't have a vision? But I'll tell you what I will say. No one was ever saved apart from the Word of God. Well, he saw Jesus. I don't know what he saw or who he saw. But if he wasn't exposed to the Word of God, he's not saved. You say, well, I read this book. Uh, this fellow went to heaven. He died and went to heaven. 
You really believe that? You really believe that nonsense? Oh, I read this book and this fella died and went to hell. There's any number of books out there with testimonies like that. When he came back from hell, he realized what a terrible place it was and he put his trust in Christ. And he's come now to tell us, look, wait a minute, I'm going to tell you something. Nobody dies and goes to hell and comes back. Nobody. No one was ever saved apart from hearing the word of God. And God made it so. Look in Romans chapter 10 for a moment. Romans chapter 10. Notice what Paul says here. Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 12. He says, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. That's the Jew and the Gentile. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Again, that emphasizes the truth that God is good to all. That he makes no difference. That he isn't better to one against another. In verse 13, it's very clear. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There it is, an open opportunity to anyone, anywhere, anytime, to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. But notice verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? You see what it says there? You can't be saved apart from the word of God. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? And as, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace, that bring God's tidings of good things, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then, notice, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. People need to hear the word of God to be saved. That's why we have a gospel meeting on Sunday evening. We don't do it for our own benefit. We're not doing it because we have nothing better to do on a Sunday evening and we thought it would be a good idea to have an extra service. We're doing it because people need to hear the word of God. People need to hear the gospel. And the gospel and the word of God appeals to human reason. Samuel said to Israel, Now therefore stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord of all righteousness, uh, of all the righteous acts of God which he did to you and your fathers. He says, I want to reason with you from the word of God. Isaiah said this, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. He says, I want to reason to you from the word of God. Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath day and persuaded the Greeks, the Jews and the Greeks. He used the word of God. And the truth of God must convince the human mind as well as convert the human soul. So God is seeking a response from you today. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, understand God is seeking a response from you. He's expecting you to respond to his command to be born again. You see, Jesus didn't say you might be born again or you should be born again or it'd be a good idea if you were born again. He said you must be born again. If you want to enter into heaven, you must be born again. 
You're going to have to have a spiritual birth. You're going, to, you're going to have to come clean with God and own your sin as we talked about last week and confess it before God the Father and admit it before him and cry out for his salvation. And the Bible says if you'll do that, you can be born again. He's taking a response from you. But I want you to see something else in James. Notice James says that God and his goodness has especially gifted us with salvation of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits. Now, who does he refer to when he uses that pronoun we? Who is the we in that verse? Well, who is James writing to? Well, we saw in verse 1 of this chapter, he's writing to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad to Jewish believers. He's writing to encourage them in their persecution and in the difficulties they're suffering in the Gentile world owing to their monotheism and their belief in Christ. And he reminds them that God has dealt with them in a very special way insofar as they were historically the first to believe. You see, you look into the history of the church and what do you see? You see the gospel went to the Jew first. The first church was located in Jerusalem. It was a church that was entirely comprised of Jewish people. They were the first sheaves of the gospel harvest. They were the first to believe, the first ripe samples. They proclaimed the new order in the gospel, the new order of spiritual things, whereby the gospel was now going out into all the world. Jesus, speaking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, said this, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem and so by far the greatest gift that God ever gave them and by extension the greatest gift that God ever gave us and the greatest proof of his love for us was the sending of his son into the world to save us you know we should thank God for that day and that hour when somebody somewhere spoke to us about the gospel. You look back in your life, somebody somewhere spoke to you about the gospel. Somebody invited you to a gospel meeting. Somebody handed you a tract. Somebody witnessed to you at work. Some friend spoke to you over a meal. Whatever it was, somehow, someway, somebody somewhere reached you with the gospel. And we ought to be thankful for that. We ought to be mindful of that, of that day when we responded to that testimony and to the testimony of God's love for us and surrendered our hearts and lives for, for, to Christ and to all that he did for us on the cross. But here's the question I'm going to ask you this morning. Are we really thankful? Are we really thankful for what the Lord did for us? I mean, honestly now, are you thankful? Are you glad for his salvation? Is that the most important thing that ever happened to you? You know, without these messianic Christians had every cause to complain. Life was tough for them. It was hard day by day. 
It was hard to go without a job. It was hard to watch your family struggling. It was hard not to be able to pay the bills. It was hard to find your business had slipped away from you, all because of your profession of faith. It was hard to be called names. It was hard to be looked upon, looked down upon by the Romans and, and those in the empire. It was hard. They had much to complain about. But James and called out any spirit of self-pity, and he called it to a halt. And he reminded them how tremendously privileged they were, how that they'd been given the greatest gift of all in the Lord Jesus Christ and made the first fruits of the harvest to the nations. Now let's think about your life and mine. Think about how often we hear ourselves complaining. Complaining about the traffic. You know, we were coming down today, Roger, I was there, and we were driving down the road today. And there they were. You know who I'm talking about, don't you? All dressed in lycra. Five or six of them. Chatting to each other about dear knows what taking up the whole road, going up the hill 15 miles an hour on a bend, seven, eight cars behind him. Did I complain? Well, my wife wasn't with me on the drive this morning. But internally, I was complaining. And there was a car in front of me. And he wouldn't overtake him. He was making it worse. It's three opportunities at least to overtake him. Three at least. And I'm sitting there going, go, go, go! <laughs> You're complaining in the car. Complaining about our work, our workload, the hours that we put in, our colleagues. Complaining maybe about our spouse doesn't help around the house, whatever it is that you want to complain about, complaining about our kids, complaining even about our church, complaining about our troubles, our trials, complaining you know, about all kinds of things, yet never really, truly, honestly thankful for God's daily gifts to us, and above all, the gift of Jesus for which Paul says, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Friends, thanksgiving leads to thanks living. If I have a thankful heart, I'll have a servant's heart. If I have a thankful heart, I'll want to respond in service to the Lord. You know, I find it to be honest with you, a mixture of frustration and incredulity hits me when I have to listen to Andrew uh, each Sunday appealing and appealing and appealing for a worker for this and for a worker for that and for a worker. Do you know what? If, if we actually understood the, the gift of God to us, we would be jumping up and saying, I'll do it. I'll do it. Why the Lord save me? No problem. I'll do it. I'll be a Sunday school teacher. I'll be a crest worker. I'll help at the youth spot. I'll do it. Pastor, count me in. We have to come back and make the same old appeal. Oh, will somebody please? 
I'm begging you. It's not how it should be. You say, wow. Every day God blesses me. Every day God gifts me. And best of all, he's gifted me with Jesus and salvation. Sometimes we need to live more thankful lives by serving the Lord. And I think that's what James was telling these people. He said, you should be careful about complaining a lot because God has also given you a lot. Some of us need to take a look at that. Maybe we need to stop complaining and griping and whining and just be thankful. Get up every day and just say this, Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for saving me. Lord, show me today how I can serve you. You know, I listened to a lady this week on the news. Her mother had given her a kidney, had donated a kidney to her and saved her life. And as she was being interviewed about this, she began to well up. And she said, I'm going to get all emotional. And she said, you know, really, she, what she has done for me and for our little family, obviously her, the lady, the donor's grandchildren, she says, I could never repay her for. And I thought about the words of Jesus, and we often use these, this phrase in an evangelistic uh, context. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And we always appeal to sinners on that basis. We say, well, you know, what is it you would put before salvation? Your soul is so important. Your soul is so vital. Your soul is so precious that nothing should come between you and God and your soul. You know, uh, you you should get those things out of the way and come to Jesus. That's how we usually make that appeal. But I thought about it from our point of view as Christians. What could we give the Lord in return, in exchange for our souls? How could we possibly repay him for what he's done for us? And you know the answer. The answer is that we could never repay him. But what we can do is thank him. And live grateful lives and serve him to the best of our ability. I hope God blesses your heart and that's a help to you this morning.